This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Amen. Well, I am still up here. Uh, Zach is gone this weekend. He is back visiting some family um, and taking care of some family things. And so you are stuck with me for better or worse. Um, But it is good to be up here this morning. I'm excited to continue in our sermon series on the book and the prophet of Zechariah, this encouraging prophet that is coming to Israel upon the end of exile. And it's also encouragement as we step into the month of May and into summer, which I am still overwhelmed that it is already summer, essentially, with May stepping upon us. And summer here at Trinity means one thing in particular, which is a little bit different for me, and it means that it's moving season. So if you've been around Trinity very long, you'll know that we have a large populace of people that are transient. Uh, Their jobs bring them here to the island for a time, and then they move on, typically in the summer when kids are out of school or when their job has just designated that as the time to move on. And so my wife Morgan and I have now been here for two summers, uh, but last summer we had come in February, so we were still trying to figure out what is going on in our life. Um, And so we were lamenting this last week that this summer is really the first one where it sets in and it hits you a little bit harder. You're losing some friendships. They're moving moving on. Uh, We've had friends move away in the past couple weeks, some leaving even this morning, uh, as well as those in the months and weeks to come. And so as we look at these relationships, these ones that we love these people dearly, they are moving on. We are still desiring to continue in friendship with them, but there's a reality that we understand that distance distorts relationship. So as you are separated physically, it is something that makes relationship much harder. It makes intimate relationship a problem. And so it's something that we understand not only with physical distance, whether it's the first time you ever moved away from your parents, whether it's if your spouse is traveling or whether it's a friend moving away, but it's also something that we understand that even if you're in the same place, we designate this feeling of distance as emotional distance, this feeling of separation where you're not really in that intimate relationship in the way you would like to be. You're not connecting with one another. And we experience this not only in our physical and emotional lives, but in our spiritual ones as well. I think all of us, if you've been a Christian for a time, have these seasons where you feel like you are far from God. These seasons where it doesn't feel like he's drawing close. It doesn't feel like you are connecting in the way you want to be. It doesn't feel like you are his people and he is your God. And this is kind of the season that Israel is coming out of. And so when we're in the prophet Zechariah, we've talked the last couple of weeks, I encourage you to go back and look at those, the timeline of what has happened. But Israel is coming out of a 70-year exile. They've been cast away from their home. They've missed this place where they had a temple where they could dwell with God in their midst. And so they're coming back and trying to experience what does it look like for God to come back to us? What does it look like to reignite this relational intimacy with God? And so as they come back, Zechariah comes with this message of encouragement that God is returning to them. And he does it through these visions that are a little bit odd uh, to us. These, there's eight visions, if we take a little zoom out for a second, that we've talked through the first three already. Um, and if you get caught up in some of the, the odd names and natures of them, like the man with the measuring line or the woman in the basket, uh, they can be a little bit odd. But just to give you a little bit of an overview of what this is meant to signify is there's a movement of God and a movement of sin throughout all these visions. And so these first four are the ushering in of God's presence, and the last four will be the resultant aspect of that, which means sin has to be cast out. 
And so as we step into vision four this morning, we're going to see that this is the culmination of God re-stepping into this relationship. It is the culmination of God drawing once again an intimate relationship with his people in Israel through his prophet and his high priest named Joshua. And so as we see this, we're going to understand this morning that for us and for Israel, there are two things that have to happen before God can fully dwell in intimate relationship with us. The first is that sin has to be dealt with. Our sins have to be dealt with before God can come in intimate relationship. And then the other thing is that our covenant vows have to be fulfilled. So these are the two things that we are going to look through as we step into Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10 this morning. I invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word as we read it together. Zechariah is speaking when he says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, thus says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch, for behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord remains forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may be seated. So what we're all really desiring, what we all look for is what it says in verse 7, right? This right of access to God. We all want to know that he's there. We all want to be comforted by him. We all want him to draw near to us. We want to know that he hears us, that he's fighting for us, that he's with us at all times, that we are his people and his children. But the two things that really stand in that way is that we need our sin dealt with and we need our covenant vows fulfilled. And so the first one is that our sin has to be dealt with. Because sin is a barrier to God's presence. We know that God is a holy God. He is righteous and cannot be in the presence of sin. And yet we are not. And so we are not able to come to him without our sin being cleansed and being paid for it, without sacrifice. And so this is the entire Old Testament sacrificial impurity rites. The entire system is set up in a way that Israel can become clean so they can dwell with God in their midst. They have a high priest that is set up as a mediator to go between God and man. This system is meant to function properly. On the Day of Atonement would be the day where they can come and be cleansed, and they would know that they're clean. But the problem for Israel is that their high priest Joshua was in exile. He was most likely born in exile, came back with the people, and so he has not necessarily been following these rituals and these rites as he was supposed to be doing. He's not necessarily going to be clean enough to step into God's presence. And so the question for Israel is, what do we do if our mediator is broken? 
What do we do if the one point of access we had to be in relationship with God is defiled? Well, the reality of that is that if He is broken and defiled, there's no one left to cleanse us. And so if there's no one left to cleanse us, we're going to be cast out from God's presence. And so as we look to this vision, we see Zechariah is actually standing in a courtroom. He's standing in a courtroom, and Joshua, the high priest, is going to be on trial. He's on trial to determine whether or not he can continue to cleanse God's people, whether or not God's people can continue to be clean, and whether or not they can remain as the people of God in his presence. This trial in this courtroom scene is one that carries immense ramifications for all of Israel. And yet when you look at the scene described, anyone in the courtroom would realize that it's a hopeless situation. See, Joshua comes before this judge as the defendant, and we're told he's wearing filthy garments. But that word filthy in English doesn't really give the full picture of what the Hebrew word wants to get at. See, this Hebrew word is not talking about something that's a little bit dusty or dirty, or maybe it's got a grass stain or two. This word in the Hebrew is actually describing garments that are soaked in human excrement or drunken vomit. That's how disgusting his presence is. The filthiness, the things that would defile him are actually what he is bathed in as he stands before the judge. And so as he comes, everyone in the courtroom can see that Joshua is defiled. Everyone in the courtroom can smell that he is not going to be acquitted, that he deserves the condemnation, that they deserve to be cast out and there's no one left to cleanse them. And so you might think, well, maybe there is a prosecutor that's going to go easy on him. But then you turn and see the one that's coming to accuse him is the one whose name means the accuser. It's Satan himself. And so you look at it and you realize that the one that is the best at accusing us is the one showing up to put him down. He's the one that's showing up and he's prepared with his arguments. He knows that Joshua is defiled. He knows that he's going to be cast out. He knows that he's going to be able to send God's people to their final destruction, cast out from their presence forever. The situation is hopeless. And yet, right as he starts to make his arguments, there's a change in the scene. Right as he goes to make these arguments and these accusations against Joshua, there's another voice that steps in. It's as if there's a defense attorney that jumps up and yells, I object. And it's actually God himself. God himself steps in and he not only tells Satan that he's not allowed to speak, but he actually condemns him for trying. He rebukes him saying, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? See, God sees Joshua's dirt. He smells how nasty he looks and the defilement of his sin. And yet God tells Satan that you don't even get a chance to say anything against this man. You don't get a chance to condemn him. You don't get a chance to accuse him simply because I have chosen him. Simply because he is a part of my chosen people. That is why you are not allowed to talk to them because he is a brand or a stick plucked out of a fire. See, the devil is not allowed to make any accusations against him. And even though Joshua stands there charred, singed, and disgusting, he's not able to be accused by the devil himself. Not because of anything he has done, not because of who he is, but simply because to who he belongs. He is God's chosen person and he's God's chosen people. And so then God, after rebuking Satan, turns to Joshua and he says, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments. God says, I know you're dirty. I know what you've done. I know that you have no hope here, but I am going to make you clean. 
I am going to deal with your sin. And he removes the robes of filth, and he replaces them with pure ones. He gives them a turban. This is like a crown, a symbol of royalty at this time. He's giving him pure, pure vestments, these robes that cannot ever be dirtied again because they're God's robes. Joshua is seeing his sin dealt with even when he couldn't. Even when he stands deserving of condemnation, God decides to step in and deal with his sin for him. And this is the same thing that God tells us today as his people. This is the same way that we are standing before God and before the judge, and whether we realize it or not, we're all looking as disgusting as Joshua. And so tempting for ourselves to think that we're, we're looking pretty good, we're, we're good people, we clothe ourselves with something to make ourselves feel better, whether it's our families, our reputation, our money, our social status, all of our good works, and we sit there trying to clothe them, and we think we look pretty good compared to the rest of the world around us. But the only reality is that we're actually dirtier than we think. We've just become numb to our own sin. Now, I'm from Ohio, and if you don't know much about Ohio, uh, there's not much there, but we have a lot of corn, we have a lot of soybeans, and we have a lot of cows. And if you've ever been to a dairy or a cattle farm, you'll know there is one very distinct feature whenever you get a bunch of cows together, and it is a smell of manure. And you will smell it before you even get on the property. You will smell it as you're driving by. You will smell it at all times whenever you're anywhere near these cows. And it will hit you with a pungent scent that will slap the smile right off your face. And this scent is something that even like growing up in Ohio, I can picture it and kind of gag a little bit thinking about it because that's how disgusting this smell is. But the funny thing is about this smell is that if you go to a cow farm, and you show up and you fight through those first few moments, you'll start to feel your body adjust. You'll start to see that it's not the only thing you smell anymore. You'll get to the point where if you stay there long enough, you'll start to, to get to the point where you equalize. You can start smelling some other things when they come about, whether it's freshly baked bread or some flowers over the top of it. You'll start to realize if you stay there all day that the smell kind of dissipates and you don't even notice it. If you're a farmer and you grew up with it, you're going to start thinking this smell is actually pleasant. But the reality is, it's still the smell of cow dung. And the reality is, for us, it's the same thing with our sin. We look at other people's sin and we think that, oh man, that is so grotesque. I can't imagine that they would be so evil and so despicable to do that thing. It assaults our morals. It assaults who we are as people. And yet the reality is, we're just numb to the facts of our own sin. We're numb to the facts that we're all standing there clothed in excrement. We're all standing there, and if we look at ourselves, we realize that, well, it's my good works and my service are actually marred with selfishness and vanity. Our interactions with family members and with our parents are tainted by our outbursts of anger and harsh words. Our thoughts are impure and unloving. The more we examine ourselves, the more we find out that we're all standing like Joshua. We're all standing clothed in the excrement of our sin, and we're all standing there without any hope. We're standing there and we constantly hear the accusations coming from the devil in our minds. We hear the constant shame over our past. We hear the constant shame over what we've done, the constant reminder that we're not good enough, the constant reminder that you're a failure and you feel hopeless until the moment you hear God step in, the moment when you hear him step in and say, I object to these accusations. See, the beauty is that as Christians, God rebukes the devil and he rebukes your shame. He rebukes your insecurities. He rebukes your feelings of inadequacy. He responds to the devil and says, that is mine. 
I have chosen you. You are free. See, the beauty is that God takes off the filth and gives us all robes that cannot be soiled and cannot be tainted. He gives us these robes of royalty. We're called a chosen priesthood and a royal heir to the throne of God. We are his people, his children. We are righteous in the eyes of the Lord because of what he has done, that he has dealt with our sin. We hear the echoes in our New Testament passage that we read this morning. Paul comes and he says that you are to put off your old self, your former manner of life that is corrupt through deceitful desires. You're to take off these robes of filth in order to put on the new self created after the likeness of God. They're his robes in true righteousness and holiness. See, we're able to be God's people. We're able to experience a dwelling and a relationship with God, not because of anything that we've done, but because of who we belong to. God says, you are chosen. He looks at us and says to each of us, I have taken away your iniquity, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. Put off your old life and put on the new robes that I'm giving you. He's cleansed us and dealt with our sins so that we can draw near to his throne. And yet this cleansing, while it is wonderful news, it is still not enough to restore this deep, intimate relationship. We see this with Joshua because he's not only cleansed, but you notice that he's also commissioned to a new life within covenant relationship. He has to fulfill his covenant vows still. So while he might be cleansed, there's still vows that are left unfinished. See, there's not just forgiveness, but there needs to be a life change. You think of it this way, God has entered into covenant relationship with his people and they have agreed to something. God has agreed that I will be your God, you will be my people, and the people agreed that they would obey the Lord. In Exodus 24, when the covenant is stated, it says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. This is what we commit to as God's people, to fulfill his law perfectly. And yet, when we look at the description of God's people throughout the Bible and even in ourselves, we understand that it's not a story of an obedient child. But instead, we're told in the Bible that it's actually a story of an unfaithful spouse. It's a wife that runs away from her husband. If you've ever been to a marriage ceremony or you have ever gotten married yourself or just seen it on TV, you understand that there's vows that you take to one another. There are these vows that typically end in something like, I will be faithful to you in good times and bad times, sickness and in health, till death do us part. But what happens when those vows are broken? What happens when, like Israel, this unfaithful wife decides, I'm going to cheat on my husband and run off with my boyfriend? What happens when she runs away, but she wants to come back and reestablish this deep, intimate relationship that they once had? Well, the first thing that has to happen is what we already talked about, the cleansing of sin. There has to be radical forgiveness, but there also has to be a life change. She also has to step back into these covenant vows. See, she can't just come back and bring her boyfriend with her. There has to be a reinstatement of what has gone on. There has to be someone that steps in and says, no, I'm going to stay with you till death do us part. She has to be faithful only to her husband. And this is what is true of Israel as well. Yes, God has removed the iniquity iniquity from Joshua and from the people, but they must also recommit to the covenant. That is why God says it to Joshua in verse 7. He says, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. He's saying, Joshua, 
I see that you have come back to us. I need you and the people to recommit yourselves to me. I need you to walk in my ways. I need you as the mediator of this covenant, the one that is set up as the high priest, the representative of the people. I need you to fulfill your vows. I need you to obey my commands, and I need you to walk in obedience. And only then can we experience this right of access, this deep, intimate relationship where you are my people and I am your God. See, the sin has been removed, but the covenant must still be fulfilled. And this is true of us as well. As God's people today, we are still those chosen by God. We are still those who have seen our iniquity taken away from us, and yet we are still called to live in faithful obedience to God's word in order to experience relational intimacy. We're still called to live in faithful obedience. We're still called to not just the confession of sin, but the repentance of it. We don't just confess our sin in order to see grace abound, is what Paul would say, but we have to realize that we are dying to sin and living more like Christ. That is how we walk in relational intimacy, because if we leave our sins without them dying, the reality is they're just sitting there between ourselves and God. Any idol that we have in our lives, even a good one, whether it be our kids, our family, our status, our money, our anything, is sitting there between ourselves and God. And so when we struggle to hear from Him, we realize that we're probably putting something in between us. Isaiah 59 says it this way, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He does not hear. So do you feel like God isn't listening to you? Isaiah says, do you you feel like he's not answering you because he can't hear you? That's ridiculous. God can always hear you. God is still there. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. He's still there. He's still present. He's still all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing. But the problem is you've got something that you're putting in the way. There's something that you're doing, this sin that you're continuing to live in rather than seeing it die is what's getting in the way. You're still trying to cling on to those robes of filth rather than put on the new ones that God has given you. And when we refuse to put those on, they're actually the very things that causes God to cover his ears and turn his face. See, we need not just cleanse from our past sin. We don't need just to be justified, but we need to be sanctified. We need to become more like God, put on these robes, like Paul says, to live into these new robes and live into these new desires that God was clothing us with, to live into obedience as his children, fulfilling our covenant vows in order to experience relational intimacy with God. But the truth is, relational obedience and relational intimacy is hard, because obedience is hard. If you've ever spent any time in the Bible, you probably know that. We talked about it last week, actually, in our uh, part of walking through catechisms and contemplating the faith. We talked about uh, uh, the Ten Commandments, verses 9 and 10, Uh, And the ninth commandment is that you shall not bear false testimony. You're not supposed to lie. But we talked about how the reality is that it's not just not lying, but you're called to speak the truth in love. There's such a greater extent to these things. When you look at the teachings of Jesus, you realize that he's not just interested in our physical obedience, but it's also the obedience of our minds and our hearts. And so as we realize this, we understand that it becomes not just challenging, but impossible. It is impossible to perfectly obey every command in the Bible. And Joshua would have known this. Joshua is the high priest. He has every law memorized. He's the guy that comes every single day reciting the Shema, that I will love the Lord my God with all my heart, 
with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength. And yet he knows that he can't do this perfectly. He knows that he can't fulfill his covenant vows by himself. And this is why he looks to the encouragement from Zechariah here, the encouragement from God's word, because he knows what God says in verse 8. God says, Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Picking up at the end of verse 9, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. God's encouragement to Joshua is to continue to walk in obedience, knowing that while you may never fulfill it perfectly, you're only meant to be a sign. You're only meant to be someone that points forward, someone that points to the one that is to come, this branch that was promised in Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, this Messiah that everyone is waiting for, this one that will one day in a single day abolish all of the sin of the land, the one that in a single day will establish that his kingdom is going to come, the day when you can sit under the fruit trees forever at peace with one another, with all of God's people, knowing that your enemies are vanquished. See, Joshua is able to continue and to try because he knows that he is meant to point to others to the branch. Joshua is looking forward to the kingdom that's coming as the encouragement of his obedience today. And this is the same vision where we draw our confidence from. We all know that this Messiah has come in the name of Jesus. We know that he is our only hope of intimacy and relationship with God. We are not looking forward to a branch, but we look back to a cross because we know the day that he destroyed sin. We know that he did it in a single day. We know that his promises are being fulfilled, that he is ushering in his kingdom, that he says himself the kingdom is at hand. We know there's a day coming when we will dwell in peace, in full relational intimacy, in the peace under the fruit trees, that this king, this servant, is the one and only Jesus Christ, and it is through him that we are able to see our sins dealt with. It is him that we're able to experience relational intimacy with our covenant vows being fulfilled. Because the truth is, while we try to achieve both these things, we are incapable of doing them both without looking to Jesus. See, Jesus is the only one that was actually able to cleanse and remove the iniquity of Joshua, and he's the only one that can do it to ourselves. Because while we read in this passage the fruit of what God has done, Joshua doesn't see how it's actually happening. See, when he looks to Joshua and he says that you're able to take on this turban, this crown, it's only because Jesus was giving his up to take on a crown of thorns and shed his blood. When he gives Joshua these pure vestments, it's only because Jesus was stripped naked and hung on that cross on that day. And when he tells Joshua that though you are guilty, I find you acquitted and there's no condemnation, it's because Jesus, though he was innocent, was found guilty on our behalf, that God made him sin that he might pay the penalty that we deserved. See, Joshua was only a sign of the true mediator. Jesus Christ, the actual Joshua, Yeshua, or the high priest that was coming. See, this is the high priest that steps in not only to make a sacrifice for our sins, but to fulfill our covenant vows on our behalf. We cannot do it perfectly, but we are pointing to him as the sign. We are those that are meant to point back to Jesus as ambassadors of his kingdom that's coming. And we're to look to him as the one that walked perfectly for us. That he became man and he walked this life, he experienced our temptation, and yet he was without sin. Jesus is the one that fulfills our covenant 
as our true mediator, our true representative. And he's the one that we look to to cleanse us and to fulfill the covenant on our behalf, bringing us back into relational intimacy with God. So the truth is this morning as we close that we can only look to Jesus to find that relational intimacy. Because we know that what he has done as our true mediator, that he has also given us a gift, the better one, the helper that he and the Father have sent for us in the Holy Spirit. There is no greater relational intimacy than knowing that we have the indwelling of the very Spirit of God among us. That we are able to look to him as our sign and our seal, that we know the kingdom's coming and we are know that we are sealed among his people. We know that we will be there under the fruit trees. We know that it will be a day when we will experience the fullness of his presence, but that we can go to him now and know that he hears us, know that he's with us, know that he has not forsaken us, but to know that he knows what's going on. Even amidst the hardship and the loneliness, we have God's very spirit. And we have the promise that the kingdom is coming, and we can look forward to fulfilling these covenant vows in our bleakest way possible as a sign of the one that came for us and the one that cleansed us. We can look forward to the day that Revelation 21, we will hear the voice proclaim that it is finished, and behold, the dwelling place of God is with us. He will dwell with us, that we will be his people, and God himself will be with us as our God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. This is the reminder of Zechariah's prophetic message. It's a reminder to the people that the kingdom is coming. Take heart. God is coming to cleanse us and to usher back in his presence with us in covenantal relational intimacy forever. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning that we can look to you as a mediator that is better than Joshua that we can look to you as a mediator that is better than anyone else because you are God himself. That you humbled yourself in order to take off your crown and your robes that we might be able to experience your righteousness imparted to us. That we might be able to be looked upon by the Father and to see as those made right because of what you have done for us, that we are able to look to you as the one dwelling among us in your spirit, that you are here now. That even when we feel lonely, even when we feel lost, even when we feel this emotional distance, we have your spirit as the one that is meant to guide us to your truth of your word. That you are the one that is meant to guide us to how we can confess our sins and to know the full assurance of our pardon. And that you are the one to guide us how we can know that we are your covenant people established to the day that your kingdom comes, that we will enjoy the fruit and the peace forever with you, not just in a day, but for all of eternity with all of your enemies rebuked and vanquished forever. Lord, might we look forward to that day as we seek to obey you as your children, your people, and those dwelling with you. In your holy name we pray, Lord Jesus, amen.